And this time on Culture File, we make another journey to that Wicklow library of Paddy Woodworth to hear about some of the writings, thinkings, warnings and celebrations that populate the naturalist's bookshelf. This time, Paddy reaches up for Bill McKibben's 1989 book, The End of Nature, an early warning cry about irreversible changes that humans were causing on their home planet. Nature, as we have found repeatedly on the naturalist's bookshelf, is a tricky and often troubling word, as well as a reassuring and uplifting one. However we use it, it tends to return to haunt us, asking us awkward questions about a relationship we take for granted at our peril. It figures very large in the dramatic title of the book off our shelves this evening, Bill McKibben's landmark 1989 broadside on climate change, The End of Nature. This book has been compared, rightly I think, to Rachel Carson's 1960s Silent Spring. They both marked a turning point in public attitudes to the environment. And McKibben was only 27 when he published it. He sets out, succinctly and accessibly, the compelling evidence that human activity is changing our climate, and therefore everything else, in very dangerous ways. Okay, that may seem like old hat to you now, but bear in mind that he was writing several years before the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change first published a report. Sadly, his well-informed polemic has obviously not had the same impact as Carson's expose on pesticides did. We depend far more deeply on fossil fuels than we ever did on DDT, and it's taking us much longer to kick this lethal addiction. Nevertheless, McKibben deserves great credit for bringing the story to such a very wide readership. But I don't want to rehash the climate story this evening. Instead, I want to try to tease out some ideas behind McKibben's title. The end of nature certainly communicates a bleak warning that we have crossed a fateful threshold in our relationship with our environment. And in this, McKibben is spot on. Human-generated climate change is an unprecedented shift in our impact on the world around us. The consequences are already grimly familiar, and they're likely to get much, much worse, unless we change our ways. But is this really the end of nature? McKibben himself is quite upfront early in the book that it is not. The rain will still fall, he writes, and the sun shine, though differently than before. And he then explains what he does mean. When I say nature, he says, I mean a set of human ideas about the world and our place in it. My problem with McKibben here is not that he thinks nature is a cultural construct. It very often is. My problem here is that he assumes his ideas about this cultural construct are universal. But I think his ideas are actually very particular. A blend of European colonial ideals with a Christian vision of the perfect paradise as an Eden cleansed of sinful humanity. These ideas indeed informed much classic American nature writing, wedded as it was to a romantic frontier mentality. And though many writers have challenged this vision in the 20th century, it remains deeply influential. 
It has echoes today in the burgeoning popularity of the so-called rewilding movement, which also draws on a romantic view of a world without us. I first read The End of Nature just after I had read Simon Sharma's Landscape and Memory, which also featured recently on this bookshelf. And I was immediately struck by the gulf between their takes on the human place in the natural world. Sharma finds traces of human activity even in remote landscapes, places that Western visitors had often celebrated as pristine, untouched by our grubby hands. But Sharma finds this interlacing of culture and nature bracing, a source of enrichment. McKibben, on the contrary, is actually repelled by the human presence in nature. He is quite explicit about this. Nature is defined, he writes, by its separation from human society. So the ideal way to experience nature seems to be a solo hike into what we imagine as wilderness, even if that wilderness has been shaped in significant ways by other cultures. McKibben's natural world is also a little too full of bounty and benevolence. He has none of Annie Dillard's sense of dark forces, as well as bright ones, out there in that primeval thicket. McKibben argues this case for separated nature, what the Australian environmentalist Keith Bradby calls ecological apartheid, with persuasive passion, and in fairness, he has since developed a more nuanced perspective. With typical modesty, in a 2005 essay, he wrote that some crucial passages in the book now appear to him as callow, and he concedes, I romanticize the wild a great deal. And my point here is not to pull his book off its well-deserved pedestal. Rather, I want to suggest that it is valuable not only for its revelation of the follies of ignoring climate change, but also for setting down unusually explicit markers in the debate about the nature of nature. And this is a debate I believe we still urgently need to resolve if we are to move forward successfully towards a truly sustainable world. Paddy Woodworth there on The End of Nature by Bill McKibben, the latest volume of our survey of essential nature writing. And if you follow us on Twitter right now, that's at CultureFilePod, we'll tweet a link to the playlist with all the previous entries, celebrations and warnings from Peter Matheson's The Birds of Heaven to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. <laughs> 